This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you inside the ooky, the spooky, the unbelievable, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hello. This week, I'm going to tell you all about the Hinterkaifeck murders. Ooh. Now, there might be um, shades of our Ketty Cabin episode here, uh, if you, or at least some repeated themes. So if you like the sound of this episode, then uh, by all means, go back and check out that story. That's another creepy uh, sort of rural murder mm-hmm. of, a, of a family. Because this is known as one of the most puzzling and gruesome unsolved crimes in German history. Puzzling and gruesome. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, puzzling and gruesome is also the name of our folk duo. <laughs> you can guess which one is which. On March 31st, 1922, a family of six... Well, a family of five and their maid, spanning three generations, was murdered in cold blood on a remote farm outside of Munich, and the killer vanished into the German countryside. But not immediately. Hmm. But let's start at the beginning. Okay. In 1922, the farm known as Hinterkaifeck was owned by uh, Victoria Gabriel. What does Hinterkaifeck mean? That's a great question, Caroline. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I can't see a German translation uh, as such. Hinterkaifeck is just the name of this place. Mm-hmm. Hin- hinter kind of means um, away from or behind, like the hinterlands of a place are uh, kind of out in the boonies. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to know if it meant like behind the blood and guts or whatever. Behind the axe murders. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know. They knew uh, what they were getting into. Yeah, no, I know. This was just the name of the property, and I would assume Kaifek must either be a German word that I can't find or a surname or something. Mm. So at the time, Victoria Gabriel owned this farm. She was a 35-year-old widow, and she lived there with her father, Andreas Gruber, who was 63 years old, her mother, Kazilia Gruber, who was 72 years old, Kazilia, another one to add to the list. As well as Victoria's two children, her daughter, Kazilia Gabriel, uh, seven, and her son, Joseph Gruber, two. Now, Victoria became the owner of the farm when she married her husband, Carl Gabriel, uh, in April of 1914. Shortly thereafter, Carl was drafted for World War I, and unfortunately, he died not too long after that in the Battle of Arras near Neuville, France. Apparently killed by a mine shell on December 12th, 1914. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, their daughter, Kazilia, was born January 9th, 1915. Mm-hmm. Just about a month after her father's death. Oof. Court records paint an unconventional family life at Hinterkaifax. On May 22nd, 1915, um, just a little bit before her husband left for war, Victoria got a month of jail time for incest with her father, Andreas Gruber. Uh, Andreas got a year of prison time. I don't know if there's a mistranslation there or if he got a year and she only got a month, but but that's what I uh, read. I also, there was some neighborly gossip that uh, around this time, Carl uh, took a break for a while and went back to his parents' house. Like, just, I can't deal with this shit. What? Yeah. So it was, it was so blatant and out in the open that they got arrested for it? Um, well, I was reading a... Was the baby Carl's? I've never seen anyone question that the girl was Carl's. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the boy wasn't Carl's because the boy is two years old at the time of the murder seven years later. Right. Oof. Yikes. 
Yeah, there's some there's some stuff going on in this house. Actually, they're made at the they're made up until 1921, whose name was Crescens Rieger. German names are tough for me. I'm finding that things people, things people called their children in Germany in the 1920s were not built for my mouth and brain to deal with. No. Um, so Crescens Rieger uh, was the name of their their maid up until 1921. And uh, she said she actually walked in on uh, the two of them going at it once in the barn. The daughter and the father in yes. the barn? Yes. Blech. Ew. That's a, an official ain't it scary um, position, by the way. Incest? Ew. It's, an, it's a no. It's, it's a no from us dog. Mm-mm. And while we're at it, no bestiality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's I think that's safe to say. It's verboten. Um, and hopefully we didn't have to say it. No. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, now, meanwhile, Victoria's son, Joseph Gruber, was born September 7th, 1919. And Victoria said the father was neighbor Lawrence Schlittenbauer, um, with whom indeed she had had a romantic relationship. Uh, in fact, she had had a relationship with Mr. Schlittenbauer. Again, this is neighborly gossip. Every servant on this property and every neighbor around was happy to... <clears throat> the police reports were pretty gossipy, so... I think they had plenty to gossip about. Well, it sounds like it. So, Victoria had a relationship with this Lorenz Schlittenbauer while Lorenz's wife was sick with cancer. Oh, no. They carried on this relationship... The old Newt Gingrich. Yeah. They carried on this relationship once Lorenz was a widower, and hey, now... Widower, widow, maybe we can make this work. He proposed marriage, uh, apparently, and Andreas Gruber would have nothing to do with it. Yeah, because he was banging her. Yeah, the same the same maid's testimony um, speculated, and she was she seemed like quite a gossipy lass. Um, speculated that the husband, yeah, didn't want or the father didn't want anyone to take his daughter away from him, and yeah, that, and that he could provide for her in that way. My daughter, my girlfriend, my daughter. Gross. Don't take my daughter, please. <laughs> um, so it was a no to the marriage on Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Um, in any case, maybe that laid some of the groundwork for when he refused paternity on Joseph Gruber. Lorenz? Yeah. And on September 10th, he reported Victoria and Andreas for incest. So that's how they got nabbed. No, this is another time. No, this is Christ. This is four years after Andreas spent a year in jail for banging his daughter. He's now being accused of it again and, and fathering her child on her. Oh, my God. He was arrested uh, for this one. Andreas was, but not Victoria. And uh, he spent September 13th to the 27th in jail. Uh, he was only released after Lorenz came out and said, okay, you know what? The kid is mine. Um, and they didn't do more incest. You can let him out of jail. Uh, Victoria had to lobby him extensively to do this, and uh, by some reports gave him uh, bags of money. Oh, boy. Okay. This is already so much more screwed up than I ever thought. Yeah. Uh, that gossipy maid, Crescens Rieger, uh, she actually quit in late 1921 because of some frightening happenings on the farm or things on the on the farm that made her uncomfortable and not in a incest way she didn't quit after finding the dad and the daughter in the barn no she quit after a man knocked on her window around midnight one night and repeatedly con tried to convince her to let him in well also asking about where members of the family slept and saying he knew that Gruber had a lot of money and he knew where it was hidden. Yikes. So after that, and we'll get into that more because the identity of that person's disputed. <laughs> um, after that, Rieger quit and the family was apparently sad to see her go, tried to convince her to stay. Oh, I'm sure it's nothing. Um, but she was spooked and she got off the farm. I'll deal with incest, but I draw the line at men knocking on windows. <laughs> Well, that's when your personal safety comes into play. I guess. Now, some strange things started happening around the farm that everyone began to notice. Uh, Andreas Gruber in particular, in March of 1922. Gruber reported to friends and neighbors that he had found footprints leading out of the forest behind his house toward the home. But no footprints leading back. 
Human footprints. Yeah. Mm. Shoe steps. And members of the family reported hearing footsteps around the house. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the family postman, Joseph Meyer. Now, this guy's got a long route. God, yeah. Because uh, they were, I think, 45 miles or so from Munich, and it's all just farms scattered out. So this guy's route's just one farm a couple miles down from another. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said in during the month of March 1922, he was asked repeatedly by both Andreas and Victoria whether he'd ever seen anyone on the property who didn't belong there. Because they said, both of them, that they felt like someone was there constantly. I mean... Maybe that's just the feeling of someone sneaking around and banging their daughter. <laughs> you feel like someone's watching you. He also said about a week before the crime, Andreas asked him about a copy of the Munich newspaper. That was its title. I mean, it was in German, but I don't have that in front of me. The Munich newspaper. Um, an issue was left lying around on his property. But this was strange because Gruber didn't subscribe to the paper. Hmm. The postman said Gruber and Victoria both asked him if he'd left it, if he'd left it or who else on his route gets that paper. Mm -hmm. And he said he didn't deliver the Munich newspaper to anyone. Yeah, those were paper boys back in the day, right? Right. No, but no, he delivered papers, just not that one. Oh, okay. So how did it get there? (laughs) Now, one final chilling detail. Just a few days before the crime, Andreas Gruber noticed one of his house keys had gone missing. But he never reported that to the police. Bad call. Uh, Now, as I said, the maid had quit, Miss Rieger, and uh, the new maid arrived on March 31st, 1922. This was Maria Baumgartner, 44. Mm -hmm. Her last gig had been with an old lady in the small town of Unterwittelsbach. (laughs) Unterwittelsbach is the best I could do with that. She was supposedly fired from that job because the mayor of the town didn't want a, quote, cripple in the community. Oh, no. Yeah, because Maria had a shortened foot that gave her kind of a funny walk and a a mental handicap. I'm not sure how severe, but all I read was that she was slow. Yikes, I'm never going to Unterwittelsbach. Why? I think your brain performs very well. Uh, (laughs) You're very high functioning. (laughs) Rude. Um, (laughs) Baumgartner was escorted to the farm by her sister, who left after just a short stay. That sister was probably the last person to see any of the family alive. Uh Uh-oh. For the next four days, everything proceeded as normal around Hinterkaifeck. On Saturday, April 1st, some coffee sellers came to place an order... And they knocked on doors and windows. Nobody answered. They kind of walked around the yard, uh, figured no one was home, and took off. But before they did, they did notice the gate to the barn was left open. Mm. Now, yeah, on... we know what happens in the barn. You'd think they'd be real diligent about that. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. You got to keep a lock on that thing because you got maids wandering into your. Uh, squeaky squeakies all the time squeaky squeakies now on sunday the family didn't show for church which was um, a little odd to their neighbors who were used to seeing them there but they said smoke had been coming from the chimney at the at hinterkaifeck so they weren't too concerned they must have just missed it for something however on monday and tuesday kazilla was absent from school seven-year-old kazilla um with no excuse hmm Also on Tuesday, a handyman for the family, Albert Hoffner, came by. He was supposed to repair the food chopper, um, and he didn't see anyone, so he he said he couldn't see anyone on the property and couldn't hear anything but the dogs and the farm animals. He waited around for an hour, just said, screw it, I'll do it myself, and uh, spent about four hours repairing the engine, and then left. Okay. Finally, at 3.30 p.m. on Tuesday, Lorenz Schlittenbauer, Mm. the neighbor... Uh, sent his son to go check it out. Let's go. Let's go and go and check on Which the neighbors. Son? <laughs> he sent uh, his two sons, uh, Johann, sixteen, and Joseph, nine. Oh, Lorenz Schlittenbauer is the guy who proposed proposed marriage to Victoria. No, I know, but I mean, is it Joseph? 
Which Joseph. Oh, sorry. Which Joseph, son of Schlittenbauer. Oh, yeah. At, at this, <laughs> great call. At this time, that Joseph is two years old, and he is... Okay. And he goes by the name Joseph Gruber in all records, so the Schlittenbauer was never going to... Um, you know, really be a father to him, I don't think. And, and he hadn't paid any child support, more on that later. But he was biologically, supposedly, the child's father. Okay. So why did um, Schlittenbauer send his sons? Why did he even care? Well, it's his neighbors. You're concerned that something's going on. They weren't at church. Their daughter's missing from school. Hmm. The handyman says, hey, they weren't there. That's weird. He sends his sons over. One is one is sixteen, and one's nine. The boys come back, uh, reporting nothing. They had knocked on the doors and the windows, and so finally, Lorenz grabbed two other neighbors, uh, Michael Pohl and Jacob Sigel, and uh, said, "Let's go." You know, we cavalry's got to got to step in at this point. You got we, we got to go check on the neighbors. Um, now, strangely, on the way over, Jacob Sigel's account of this is great, and there there's really good. The police took extensive interviews and that stuff that stuff's widely not widely available in one place on the internet it's all available and you can read it that's impressive yeah it was it was cool um so Siegel said on the way over schlittenbauer said out loud to them oh it's all so still obviously either they've all hanged themselves or someone's beaten them to death <laughs> which seems like a strange thing to casually mention yeah, I mean, I have a very dark sense of humor, so that would be just my luck. And like, this, ooh. I mean, I guess this is his ex's house he's walking up on. Exactly. <laughs> Who he accused of incest with her father. Yes. Now, oddly, Siegel says they didn't go to a door or window to knock. Maybe that had already been tried, right? Um, so Sch Sch Lorenz Schlittenbauer led them straight to the barn. There was a uh, young cat. They the barn was unlocked uh, from the inside. The door swung open. Uh, there was a young cow standing in the room, and um, so Schlittenbauer stepped right over a. He said, "Ah, Victoria." No, nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he did walk right over to the cow, like, "Oh, here, let's get you." And he he got the cow hung up, stepping in the process right over a pile of corpses in the middle of the room. Oh, oh, and Sigil people corpses. Sigil was like, "Um, hey, Lorenz, there's there's something here." And as they kicked the hay away from the pile of carnage on the floor, this is what they saw. And this is one of the more gruesome things we've done on this podcast so far. Um, so buckle up or maybe just jump a minute ahead if you really don't like that kind of thing. The right half of Andreas Gruber's face was smashed as if with a heavy object, with cheekbones protruding from the skin, and the flesh of his face was shredded and caked with blood. Now, his body lay face down, over and perpendicular to his wife's and daughter's. Kazilia Gruber. The older, yeah. The older woman, the mother, had bruising near her right eye and signs of strangulation, but it was blunt force trauma that killed her. At least seven blows to the head had smashed her skull and left a triangular hole. Mm. Victoria Gabriel, Andreas and Kazilia's daughter, may have gotten the worst of it. Nine star-shaped wounds to the head, strangulation marks on the neck, and the right side of her face had basically been smashed with a blunt object, and there was a small, round injury made by some kind of a pointed tool right near the top of her skull. Mm. A few feet away from all this was the younger Kazilia, Kazilia Gabriel. The seven-year-old girl's head was smashed and her neck was slashed, and a clump of her own hair was found clenched in her fist. Christ. Which police later figured she must have been lying there for a while. Ugh. Schlittenbauer immediately went about moving the bodies, uh, carefully lining them up next to each other in the barn. So it was just these four? Three. Just Paul, Sigil, and uh, Schlittenbauer. No, just these four bodies. Yes. Okay. And he starts making a human design out of them? Just lining them up nice, you know, because the police are going to want all the bodies in one convenient place when they arrive to investigate yes, the crime scene. Absolutely. They love tampering with the crime scene. Yeah. And Sigil and Paul were apparently like, uh, are you sure you should be doing that? Are you sure you should be moving the bodies? And he was like, oh, no, it's fine. Typical. 
it's like it's hard it's hard to interpret um again some of the later on we'll talk about it but some of these actions of some of the people in this story uh it's hard to tell stupidity from suspicious yeah just like just like a stupid guy being like oh there's this cow completely like missing all the bodies on the floor and then be like well we'll make it nice for them it was at this point that schlittenbauer looked up and suddenly said i have to check on my boy right away Oh, now he's your boy. And he went and used a key to open the front door of the house. Now, Joseph was in a baby carriage in his room, and that's where Schlittenbauer went right to. Mm. The whole top of the stroller had been destroyed by a single blow that had caved in the infant's head. Oh, God. Schlittenbauer, at this point, according to his neighbors, looked around for a candle in the room, lit it, and said... Has an eternal light for my boy. They then found Maria Baumgartner dead on her bedroom floor from repeated blows to the head, covered with a blanket. She couldn't have been on the property for much more than 12 hours. Yeah, this is her first day. It's as first days of work. It's uh, it's pretty, pretty rough. Yeah. Sigil said Schlittenbauer then immediately just got busy feeding the animals on the farm. Police hadn't shown up yet. He was like, well, we better make sure these uh, cows are fed. And he was asking the boys for help doing it. He's like, get, get up in the loft and throw some hay down. And they were like, I don't think we should be doing this. <laughs> I mean, people handle this stuff in different ways. I mean, it doesn't seem too crazy to me to go into like just action mode and be like, well, we got to we got to feed the animals. We got to, you know, because you don't know what else to do. But yeah, people react that way. In it's tragedy. weird. <laughs> Um, there was the men also found a bowl of bread soup mm. sitting on the <laughs> sitting on the burner of the stove. And Sigil commented that, you know, granted Schlittenbauer was running around feeding the animals, but none of them looked all that hungry. Mm. Um, and in fact, later on, police determined that someone had definitely been feeding the animals and eating food out of the kitchen for the last three days. Oh boy. And like I said, neighbors did see smoke coming out of the chimney. Right. Oh, boy. Not good. So that implies, because all of the bread from the pantry was gone. Well, bread soup. And the meat in the house had recently been cut. Yeah, this time I think you just have a big block of meat, right? You cut some off when you need it. Mm-hmm. It had been cut within like the last day, so someone... Break me off a piece of that block of meat. <laughs> The classic jingle. So, <laughs> so somebody lived in this house, presumably for three days with the corpses of their victims. Listen, it's unusual, but it's happened before. I mean, um, I think it happened. Something like this happened in the Velisca axe murder case, and I think uh, the original Night Stalker also did stuff like this. And the Manson family, um, they treated themselves to sandwiches and such after brutally killing people so it's not it's not the usual but people do it yeah but sticking around for three days that's bold that is bold that's pretty bold um around this point the police finally got there the autopsy was performed the following day in the barn by johan almuller just left him out there apparently oof almuller determined that all six of these victims had been killed in cold blood. The most likely murder weapon was a mattock, which is similar to a pickaxe. It's like a one side is a pointy side, Mm -hmm. maybe about uh, as long as your hand. And the other side is kind of a a wider um, axe blade sort of thing. Yeah, pretty similar to a pickaxe. Yeah. And uh, the handle on this would be three feet long about. So like a hatchet handle, maybe. Mm hmm. Or a little longer. Was so, it was it on the scene or was it missing? Well, let's get into the whole investigation, which was headed up by a Georg Reingruber with Munich police. And we'll uh, get into Reingruber and what he and his boys tried to do and what they had to deal with after the break. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. 
It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. You're here, which means you love podcasts. But are you looking for another kind of entertainment on the go? Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to memoirs, news, business, and more. By signing up for a free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash scary, you'll receive access to thousands of titles with one credit toward any audiobook and two Audible originals, free during your trial and then with subscription each month after. Personally, my favorite Audible title is also my favorite book, It by Stephen King. I went into this audiobook ready to judge because I've loved this novel since I was a kid, but between the stellar production value and the truly breathtaking narration performance by actor Steven Weber, I was 100% all in. If you like this podcast and have a strong stomach, I think you will be too. Not into audiobooks? No problem. With podcasts, theatrical performances, guided meditations, and more, Audible offers something for everyone. So what are you waiting for? Get started now. And hey, you'll be helping support the podcast. Visit our link at www.audibletrial.com slash ain't it scary for a free trial. That's www.audibletrial.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Audible. Listen more. Welcome back. When last we left you, Victoria Gabriel and her entire family, and their maid, had been murdered apparently in cold blood, and apparently with a pickaxe found on the farm. And apparently by someone who decided to live with their corpses for another three days. And apparently by someone who (laughs) stayed on the farm for three days afterward. Yikes. Now to answer your question from before the break, Carrie, no... The pickaxe was not found. The mattock was not found on the scene. Hmm. More on the murder weapon later, but for the time being, it was in the wind. Okay. Now, like I said, Inspector Georg Reingruber, who was heading up this investigation, had a lot to deal with. Uh, That included the fact that by the time he got there for the autopsy the following day, people had cooked meals in the kitchen. Uh, the bodies had all been moved, as we said, uh, evidence had been moved around. People had been walking in and out of and through this house, uh, just neighbors, uh, walking through and gossiping and kibitzing, um, for basically the whole 24 hour period, uh, after the discovery. And the bodies were still just laying out there. Yeah. To my understanding. Yeah. It was 19, 1922 was interesting. Yeah. And in the country, too, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I mean, on a farm, you're accustomed to seeing, like, gruesome stuff and death and everything, but these are a bunch of people with their faces crushed in that you used to know. It's, it's a lot. Yeah, so Ryan Gruber said that made it difficult to collect evidence. Oh, yeah, Georg? Yeah? They did say that, like I said, Kazilia was the younger, was likely alive <laughs> for a while after the attack uh, and may have been the last one to die on the farm because of the... Uh, clumps of her hair she had pulled out because she was in pain or that's the assumption pain or just distress lying there a few feet away from the corpses of her mother and grandmother now the natural assumption with a crime like this oh by the way the skulls of all of the victims were cut off and sent to munich where the police department was for further inspection they just mailed a bunch of heads to munich yeah well they wanted to bury the corpses so they buried them headless? 
It feels like bad luck or something. Well, you're you're going to return the head later, right? But they, first they sent it to Munich. They were actually <laughs> investigated. Throw it in the hole. They were investigated by forensics experts. What passed for forensics experts in 1922? It's a head. And also clairvoyance, which was what passed for forensics experts in uh, 1922. I sense it's a head. And unfortunately, those skulls were still in Munich around the time of World War II, apparently. And then after that, lots of things got lost. So these skulls... That's like 20 years. So these skulls... Th well, those heads were lost before then. clairvoyants were taking their time. Don't blame it on the clairvoyants. I know you want to. This sounds just like police incompetence. I wonder how many lost items, things that just got lost, people are like, it was World War, it was World War II. Oh, for sure. <laughs> For sure. It's just like something some guy dropped. Yeah. But these are five, six heads? Yeah, six skulls. I mean, smashed <laughs> up skulls. Hey, Timmy, come over here. We got some mail from... Oh, my God! <laughs> now, the natural assumption with a crime like this might be a random home invasion robbery by a vagrant. Certainly, that was the first thing the police thought when looking at the scene. Mm -hmm. However, no money was missing from the farm, and they actually had a bunch. Really? Well, I mean, Victoria did have sacks of it to give to Lauren's. Yeah, they weren't poor. This farm was doing well, and um, these people had money. But none of it was missing. There was a bunch of cash easily findable mm -hmm. in, in the kitchen. And we know that they were in the kitchen because bread Co soup. Cooking up that bread soup. <laughs> Is that just like bread in hot water? You know, I've never heard of bread soup. Bread... Is it like a matzo ball soup? You know, bread pudding doesn't sound appetizing, but that's great. So maybe we shouldn't judge it. But bread soup sounds... I'm, I'm not one for soggy bread. It sounds so. like you just boiled a bunch of bread. I mean, some beers taste that way. <laughs> I was about to say, I, I, I call beer bread soup. That's uh, I could have a bowl of that. Ugh. Now, police did get a little more information uh, by questioning some folks who had been around the farm at the time. Uh, of course, they got the statement from that earlier coffee uh, salesman and the handyman who came by to fix the engine. Had the mailman come by? Yep. He had left the mail on the porch on Monday and Tuesday. Oh, he had left the mail on the porch on Saturday and Monday and Tuesday. I'm not sure if he came Sunday or not. Mm -hmm. um, but that's how they knew the crime definitely took place over Friday night was because... And he didn't find that concerning by like the second, third day? Oh, you know what? On Monday, sorry. On Monday, I think he said... I think he said on Saturday he stuck the mail in like the window. Mm -hmm. Went up right up to the house, stuck the mail in the window. He was pretty friendly with the family. Um, and I think on Monday he was like in more of a rush and he just tossed the mail. <laughs> Like at the yard on his way past. Good like luck. No, like a lazy paper boy. Because mm -hmm. I, th I think in his statement, and don't quote me on this, I could be wrong. I'm quoting myself on a podcast. <laughs> um, in his statement, he did say something about like, if I had thought about it, I would have, I, trust me, if I had seen who the mail was still in the window, I would have alerted people. <laughs> he seemed distraught over the fact that uh, he was delivering mail to this house full of corpses. Yeah, it's not great. The police spoke to an artisan named Michael Plockle, <laughs> who said he was uh, passing by on f early Saturday morning. And he noticed the outdoor oven had been heated up by someone. Uh, there was an outdoor oven in the courtyard of the... And this was not related to the food chopper that was fixed. No, because this is just right after the murders, presumably. Mm. Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. And he saw somebody with a lantern. The lantern turned towards him and blind him for, blinded him for a minute, and he said he hurried on down the road. Hmm. Now, this claim was never investigated, and no one, uh, as far as I can tell, even checked in the oven to see what, if anything, had been burned there. But that's that. Um, and then a butcher named Simon Rieslander saw two unknown figures at the edge of a nearby forest, and he said when he called out to them, they both turned their backs presumably so as not to show their faces. Was this butcher coming to buy meat from the family? No, he was just... Just butchering around. He was just traveling, but he but he saw these guys at the edge of a forest near next to Hinterkaifeck. Mm -hmm. 
probably I'll say those are probably both nothing. Mm. But who knows? They could be related. And those the two figures you'll think of again when we get to our suspects. Oh. The farm itself was demolished in 1923 after the investigation had been concluded. And finally, the mattock, the pickaxe that had been used presumably to carry out the murders, was found in the ruins of the barn. So it was there, in the barn or the cor- courtyard, um, but it wasn't found until the barn was knocked down, which you have to call shoddy police work, right? Yeah, I mean, at least they took good notes, but you didn't check the oven and the weapon was there the whole time? Yeah. Yikes, guys. Not so good, Georg. Pretty rough. Now, uh, maybe the most compelling development in the entire case comes in mid-May 1927. This is a break, because the police haven't cracked it, obviously, by 1927. A man from the town of Wadehoven said that he was bicycling home, and he was stopped at midnight on his way into town by a stranger who asked him to get off the bike, and then asked him questions about the investigation into the killer of Hinterkaifeck. Get off your bike. So what do you know about this murder? Finally, after a few minutes of conversation, the gentleman suddenly exclaimed, Soon there will be light on the matter! I am the killer of Hinterkaifeck! And he dashed off across a meadow and into the woods. Across a meadow? (laughs) What a strange person. I am the killer of (laughs) Hinterkaifeck! Hooray! (laughs) Skipping off across the meadow. I like him. Well, that's a bit extreme for for a guy who said he's a murderer. Now, over 100 people were questioned in the investigation into this crime. As recently, actually, as 1986, apparently. What? And to this day, officially, it remains unsolved. Yeah, I, I gathered that from the lack of evidence that they took in. Uh, yeah, but there was a 2007 investigation, sort of, uh, the nearby F- Furstenfeld Brook, that's a mouthful, Furstenfeld Brook Police Academy gave its students an assignment to investigate the Hinterkaifeck case using modern police techniques. Okay, well, that's hella fun. The student's report, which you can read online, we'll link it, uh, concluded the crime was completely unsolvable in the modern day, given the amount of time that had passed. Yeah, there's not even a location anymore. And the police techniques of the time and just the bad crime scene stuff. Uh, there were never sketches made of this crime scene, even. Uh, fingerprints were never collected. Uh, and indeed, by 2007, the vast majority of people who could have committed this crime were dead. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, So the students actually say in their report they did narrow it down to one main suspect. There's one person they think may have committed this crime, um, but they wouldn't reveal who that person was because they said it was only suspicion and not proof, and uh, they wanted to respect surviving relatives that may be out there. Well, I give you an F, then. (laughs) It's a good thing you weren't their professor. Jeez. That was the whole point, kids. Well, let's talk about some of the possible suspects. Well, I assume number one is Lawrence. We'll get to him later. Oh. First, I want to talk about Carl Gabriel. Oh. You see, Carl was supposedly killed in France in World War I. But you see, the body was never recovered. There was never a... Wasn't he blown up? There was never a Carl Gabriel buried. He was blown up. So at the time, some speculated that Carl had never died. And that he was visiting revenge on his incestuous wife and father. Okay. Uh, This is... Some say this is backed up by accounts from some German prisoners after the Second World War, who were let out of Soviet prison camps by a German-speaking guard who claimed to be the killer of Hinterkaifeck. I'm sure he was a killer, but whether he was the killer... So you're not buying, uh, you're not buying Carl Gabriel? Well, I don't find them not finding a body very, didn't you say he was killed by like a grenade or something? Yeah, a mine shell. And actually. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Of course there was no body. He was in bits. You can read sworn testimony from several. He wasn't in bits. You can read sworn testimony from several of his buddies who saw his body uh, lying on its back with like, like they have details of like which arm was where and stuff. Um, He definitely died. (laughs) And, and even so, 
um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's an appealing, very appealing, especially with him becoming a Soviet, uh, uh, prison camp guard in world war two somehow. Yeah. I don't know. It's appealing, but no, he clearly was blown up. Now there was another suspect named Peter Weber who police looked into for a while. Um, I liked this one. He was named by a guy named Joseph Betts. Now, Betts had roomed with Peter Weber uh, when they were both laborers in the winter of 19 to 20. And Weber had told Betts about a remote farm called Hinterkaifeck, where only one couple lived there with their daughter and her two children, and Weber had suggested killing the old man and these women and children and taking the money. Well, Weber, why'd you do that? Well, Betts wasn't into it. He said, whoa, I'm not, that's... <laughs> hey, Joe Betts says no to that. Like, we met yesterday. Why do you think I'm cool with this? <laughs> and so Weber stopped talking about it. But when the murders happened, Betts thought, eh, I know a guy. Yeah, and did he say anything at the time? Uh, well, police did arrest him, but uh, ultimately they didn't find much evidence connecting him to the crime. Any evidence connecting him to the crime other than that, um, you know, sort of plan... <laughs> from a year before mm -hmm. from two years before and so he was released plus we know that robbery was likely not the motive in this murder because none of the money on the farm was taken yeah so that usually and the killer had time by the way if he wanted to take money it's not like he didn't have time to find it he was there for days that usually leads to some sort of crime of passion then yeah. If there wasn't any sort of material motive to it. Mm -hmm. Crime of passion? Mm -hmm. Who had passion in this case? We're not getting to him yet. <laughs> there were also the Thaler brothers who were uh, more neighbors. You know, for such a remote farm, there's a lot of neighbors. Yeah, everyone's wandering by at all hours. I think anyone within like 15 miles is a neighbor in this context. <laughs> yeah, they have nothing else to do but just wander by at midnight. So the Thaler brothers were looked into as um, suspects. Joseph Thaler was... Is everyone named Joseph? It's this very, is like my family reunion. It's a very common German name. Good J -O -S -E -F. Lord. J-O-S-E-F. Joseph Thaler. Um, I don't know his brother's name because it's not in the maid's testimony, but Krizhens Rieger... Probably friggin' Joseph. She said Joseph Rieger, the elder, came to her one night uh, around midnight, knocked on her window. I told you this story. She said it was this guy, Thaler, who uh, showed up at the farm that night. Remember, came and knocked on, on the window. Mm -hmm. Come to my window. Yeah, I'm sure that's exactly how it went. Let me in. Let's kill the family. That's kind of the family, he, the, the conversation he had with her. Mm -hmm. Now, in this conversation, again, the person she spoke to, because... Rieger at one point says this was Joseph Thaler, but in another account, she said that this was Anton Bickler, another neighbor, <laughs> who also had a brother. So she might have been confused between the two brothers. Mm -hmm. If you look at articles about this, the Bickler brothers and the Thaler brothers are both listed as suspects. But they're both listed as suspects because she thinks they may have come to her at midnight and had this conversation. She seems a little confused. She seems a little confused in a, in a lot of areas. Um, Rieger also said that the mattock was, that was used in the murder when she saw the weapon that was recovered after the farm was uh, demolished. She said, um, I know mattocks and that one has a purchased handle. Whereas... Oh, she's very definitive about this. Yes. And she said Gruber always made his own tools, including the handles. So this was brought here for the murder. So yeah, he... <laughs> Therefore, she thought he was it, very attached to his own makings. Therefore, she thought it must have been a neighbor. Because mm -hmm. you wouldn't have carried this big, you know, rather heavy tool a long way to come and do this murder. Um, She's doing more police work than the police were. Yeah, she is. It's just not very good police. We're gonna, now, she also, she said both the Thaler brothers and Bickler brothers, all these names. <laughs> and, and they're all Joseph. And servant George Siegel, who also worked on the... Hinterkaifeck farm, um, all had made threats against the family's life to her at one time or another. Like a clue, <laughs> like a clue situation. It doesn't seem like they were super popular socially. In a word, no. Uh, they, they were the weird, oh, they were the weirdos in town, right? 
they had a lot of public weirdness going on and, and people and weirdness is one word for it. People yeah. Didn't like them very much. Um, this George Siegel guy also broke into the house in November of 1920 and stole a bunch of shit, apparently. So, you know, th- there's a real rogues gallery in and around this farm. Um, that same Siegel, by the way, he specifically claimed he recognized the mattock that was pulled out of the farm a couple years later. He said, oh, yep, that was right here on the farm. I made the handle for that mattock myself. So not professionally bought. Well, at least something he didn't steal. What a freak. So I don't know who to believe in any of that. All that's just uh, just weirdness. Yeah. Um, here's, an, here's another possible. This is just too interesting for me not to mention. Another possible perpetrator who's been put forward for this crime is one paul mueller do you recognize that name vaguely paul mueller is a possible serial killer well he would be if he committed this crime possible serial killer theorized in bill james's book the man from the train this is a book that theorizes that between 40 and 100 unsolved murders in america were all committed by a serial killer he, th- he thought this person filled the holes of all these different murders uh, the guy's name being paul mueller and now, paul mueller was a real person he was a real person he killed a massachusetts family in 1897 with an x um <laughs> kicking off an unsuccessful year-long manhunt for him uh, after at the end of which he was still at large was he ever found no he was never found and so bill james who is better known as a baseball like sabermetrics guy he did all of this comparative... Listen, we all have our passions. He did all this comparative data stuff, and uh, he believes that this Paul Mueller guy traveled around as a traveling working lumberjack and just did some family murders on the side. Yeah, axe by day, axe by night. Hinter Kaifek is mentioned in Bill James's book, which he wrote with his wife, by the way, that's cute. Um, in his book, <laughs> the, Man with the, Tra- the Man from the Train, the authors say that... F- for Hinter Kaifek, Paul Mueller is, quote, more or less a toss-up. But they also say there's, quote, no real reason to believe it's not him. Yeah, I guess with all the, the great police work they did, <laughs> it is a toss-up, yes. And finally, we come to the man who I assume those police academy students were. Um, and by the way, I, I, one only can hope that it was Carl Winslow... And Steve Gutenberg and all of our old friends uh, back at it again. Yes, I do hope that. Um, I would assume that's this is who they're talking about, uh, purely because if it was Mueller for some reason, um, I don't think they'd be too worried about offending his offspring or whatever, because he was already a serial killer. So mm-hmm. Bobcat Goldthwait would probably show up. Yep. So Lauren Schlittenbauer... <laughs> is probably the suspect that fits best for this crime. But like those police academy students said, uh, everything's pretty circumstantial. Um, Well, Sean, I mean, like I said, you know, to me, it seems like an act of passion. Um, And who would be more passionate than a a scorned lover uh, who has to live next door, weirdly? Yeah, well, next door would be still being a couple miles down the road, but yeah. Well, everyone seems to be on top of everyone else's shit in this place. That's true. And while he hadn't paid any alimony up till that point, gossipy neighbors claimed after the killings that Victoria was uh, suing him for child support. Well, in fact, that she had filed less than two weeks before the murders, a lawsuit for child support. Now, is this a fact? This is something that did the police know this? They th- would know if this was in the courts or um, going to the courts. Yeah, I never saw any police records about it, but I did oh, see yeah. that Siegel certainly, Siegel and also the maid certainly believed this. Genuinely, I believe any crime can be solved if the police work isn't terrible. You know, like if, the, if this is all like competent police and we're in modern day, right? So we have the benefit of that. But right. like... Even in this case, come on, guys, look into some stuff. It's not that hard. It's your job. I know, especially because Lorenz Schlittenbauer, I mean, has obvious motive, right? Yeah. He wasn't happy. Even before the child support thing, he's been spurned for marriage over here because um, she's 
having sex with her dad, who also they like how mad would you be? <laughs> that's that's not a great. And then he's probably let down. He's probably been made to like step up and say this child's mine when he knows it's like an like this product of incest. Yeah, I'm not judging the child for that. It's not no. his fault. In addition, there's a lot of questions about Schlittenbauer, like. Why did he start moving the bodies around instantly? Uh, why did he feed the animals? Why so did he quick? feed all the animals? Um, Siegel said he thought it was weird that Schlittenbauer, when he started moving around feeding the animals, as well as when they searched the farmhouse, he knew exactly where everything was. He moved about the farm well, with a real comfort. He'd been moving about the farm with some comfort with Victoria before that, so that's not too crazy for me. I think that might have been happening away from the farm, though. Where? Everyone's on top of this friggin' farm all the time. Well, yeah, that's true. But It was either his farm or her farm. The former maid said she only saw him on the property outside and talking to Andreas. I guess. And his favorite meal was bread soup. Um, but granted, he was, you know, he could have been sneaking around the property to get uh, some alone time with Victoria. He could have... Um, he apparently didn't really come and visit his possible son very much uh, yeah. at the farm but um but maybe but he, he knew, knew his where way he around. was sleeping right he went right to the son's room yeah why did he have a key well there was a key missing sean yeah so i'm saying let's if you were trying to eliminate him as a suspect <laughs> i mean back when i lived at home with my parents like our neighbors had a key to our house just in case and we had a key to theirs because we were very close but this doesn't seem like one of those situations. None of your this... family had ever spent a year in jail because of your neighbors, had they? Um, I rather not talk about. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Yeah, so he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would get carte blanche to enter a house. No, no, I don't think so. But the so... key was missing, so maybe he stole it. So for me, he fits pretty well. Here's the part that doesn't fit for schlittenbauer why keep the smoke burning in the chimney why eat food in their kitchen why the food is weird i can see the smoke maybe being like trying to prolong the discovery feeding, of the bodies feeding the farm animals again that could be a, a prolonging the discovery of the bodies type of thing right um trying to make it i mean it worked right making it look like someone was there even if they weren't answering the door. But I don't know. I mean, did, were his sons ever questioned? Did they say, yeah, dad wasn't home? Well, <laughs> that's interesting. The, around this time, he was, Lorenz was very concerned about um, thieves, apparently, on his farm. And so he was supposedly spending every night sitting up in the barn waiting for thieves. Uh-oh. He was in a barn, all right. Yeah, some have speculated he might have been traipsing over to another barn to do some slayings. So the sons were like, yeah, I don't know. He was in the barn. Yeah. Interesting. How old were his kids? 16-ish or something? Just because I was thinking of the two men talking by the woods. and I was wondering if they could be the two sons of Lawrence. His kids are 16 and 9. Oh, 9. Yeah, you'd probably notice that was a kid. Mm hmm. Hmm. So that's... That's it for the Hinter Kaifek murders. I mean, that's all... You, was Lawrence questioned? I mean, how did that go? Yeah, sure he was questioned. He, he said... Um, basically what Siegel said. He didn't give quite as much detail about how he jumped right to feeding all the animals and stuff. And that's it, huh? He said he'd, you know, he'd noticed after four days that his neighbors hadn't been around. They hadn't been at church. He sent his son over to look. The son didn't, the sons didn't find anything. So he went over and, uh, and discovered the bodies. Well, after he stepped on them or whatever he did to get to the cow. Huh. So then that's it. It'll never be solved. Yeah. I mean, again, those... Police Academy, Steve Gutenberg and his buddies, <laughs> um, they did say that this was an unsolvable case. They said there's probably... Definitively, yeah. Probably a suspect. 
they probably didn't even take fingerprints off of the handle of the mattock when they found it. Right. Ugh. So you and they, no, they didn't take any fingerprints off anything. The bowl of the bread soup. I mean, what are these people thinking? The police academy kids, kids, students said, um, the police trainees said that if any fingerprints were taken at all, they if were. If any police work was done at all. There was no record of them. They were all lost. And they, they were doing fingerprints in 1922. Oh, yeah. So I, I don't know. That's poor police work. But again, maybe again, I had read that meals had been cooked in the kitchen. Yeah. So. So maybe the police were just like, well, screw it. It's not even worth it. Everyone's touched everything. That's not your job. Do your job. So what do you think? I think it was Lawrence. I think it was probably Lawrence Schlittenbauer. I find that to be the most comforting possible answer because it makes sense to me. Uh, of course, the more chilling one would be if this was a random... Yeah, you don't want this to be a stranger's situation. Yes, the random slaying of a family like just for fun. Yeah. Or for sexual gratification, which is what um, this this Paul Mueller would have gotten out of it if it was a his situation. Right, but it, there also wasn't any like... That's a very far-fetched assault or anything like that. By the way, the... It's, it's very far-fetched that that specific traveling lumberjack made it sure. over here and did this murder. But absolutely. But the idea that a <laughs> that one traveling lumberjack, the idea that a random maniac with with some kind of a psychosexual monstrosity inside him did this. Um, yeah, obviously we don't want to think that way. But I think what very little evidence there is kind of points to someone who has a lot of anger towards the family. Um, it even makes sense, kind of, him, Lawrence, uh, being like, oh, my son, my son, like, putting on a big show uh, after not, like, disowning this kid this whole time. Yeah, um, well, the, I, I thought that, too. Like, he goes, I need to check on my son, and then I'm going to light a candle. It'll burn for his little self forever, or whatever like, it is he well, said. well, you know what? You probably should have been paying alimony then. Right, like, no, he and was actively he, fighting. They were just just suing for alimony, like, right before this, which, again, is conjecture, and it's absurd that the police don't know this for sure. And he had been technically paid to even accept the paternity of the child well that was also like a rumor yes so this is so stupid um yeah i i i think it might be him i don't want to besmirch a dead man's name or anything assuming he is dead because it's been a oh, hundred yeah, years he's dead um but it's either that or some random guy or woman, uh, which is very chilling. Much scarier that way. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I would tend to think it's this this Lorenz Schlittenbauer fellow. I think that name means sled maker because in I was using Google Translate to read all these web pages <laughs> and it kept just calling him sled man or sled maker. Oh, the sled maker. So that was Bud will be your last word too. And that'll be our next uh, Carrie's next horror feature. The sled maker. The sled maker. That is what I would call a film about the Hinterkaifeck murders. The sledge maker. The sledge maker? Yeah. The sled maker. Sledge is how they said it. But it's just a sled. Oh. Um Yeah. What do you think? Is that the most is it is it one of the more chilling where does it rank among chilling unsolved murders? It's pretty close to the Keddy ones. Um, I mean, they're so similar. Because to me, in both of them, it seems pretty clear that there's one person who really stands above the rest as likely mm -hmm. uh, to have committed these crimes. And it's also just this kind of scary idea of being, you know, a little more out there in the wilderness, a little less connected to the outside world and what can happen to you so but these people weird though they may have been as seen by their community weird. um you know outcasts maybe social outcasts a bit but but these people weren't on hard times these people were were uh, you know doing well successful but you can't take it with you when somebody 
Beats your head in with a mattock? Beats your head in with a mattock. Yeah, I guess not. I don't think there's any other lessons we can take from this. <laughs> uh, except when your house keys go missing. Call the cops. Yeah. Yeah. Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookySciencesisters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you and stay spooky. Want to treat your pup to something special? When you visit www.barkbox.com slash scary, you can receive a free month added to your plan when you sign up for a six or 12 month subscription. That's an extra month of two fun toys, two full-size bags of treats, and a tasty chew at no additional cost. Recent box themes have included Home Alone, Liquor Treat, and a night at the squeakeasy. Poe loves trying out new toys and treats, and he was psyched to get a bark box. Your pup will be too. So sign up at www.barkbox.com slash scary for a free month added to any six or 12 month subscription. That's barkbox.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y. Give your furry friends something to bark about. It's conspiracy time with Lizard People Big World. Last week, Joe Biden appeared on the South Lawn of the White House to speak to reporters before boarding Marine One. Or did he? <gasps> QAnon forums and the subreddit r slash conspiracy have been blowing up with rumors that Biden was filmed in front of a green screen instead of out on the lawn for this appearance. Why? Why are they saying this? Yeah. Um, because at one point, Biden's hand oddly appears to pass over the boom microphones in the foreground of the video. And it does look weird. Um, it kind of looks like something that would happen in a poor green screening. Like think Han Solo and Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. And just like a weird movement. And then he turns and he says, uh, <laughs> Kamala, you're a wonderful human being. <laughs> Uh, so they think because of this weird movement, he must have been digitally added to the footage. Former Trump administration official Sebastian, Sebastian Gorka shared his own thoughts on the conspiracy, saying perhaps it was the microphones that were photoshopped into the image. Mixed martial artist Tito Ortiz oh, thank God. and retired MLB player Aubrey Huff also shared the green screen speculation to their plentiful Twitter followers. If Biden did fake his appearance, qui bono? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Why, why do this? Well, this isn't the first conspiracy to spread about our current president actually being less capable than he's been made, been made to appear. And speculation about deep fakes and faked appearances even followed the last guy, too. The rumors got so crazed over on Twitter that Voice of America reporter Steve Herman was compelled to tweet, quote, I was the one holding the lighter colored fuzzy microphone and thus literally in front of at POTUS on the South Lawn. <laughs> it's all real. Who actually believes this faked moon landing type nonsense? And more importantly, who's spreading it? Too true, Steve. See, By I knew the moon landing was too dumb to do an episode <laughs> on. I knew it. Biden's hand passing over the microphones and looking CGI'd was simply a trick of the angle, as the fuzzy microphone that Steve refers to, uh, which is a lighter gray, was proved to be stationed to Biden's side, but it looked directly in front of him from the angle that this particular person was filming from. So it's just a perspective trick. Exactly. It's a hobbit. It's a hobbit. It's a classic hobbit. It feels crazy to have to say it, but... 
Joe Biden is the president. He is live. He is real. And he's actually out doing stuff. He was. Yeah, he walked right in. He walked right through one of those microphones. It was smaller than the other microphones. (laughs) It was like way smaller. (laughs) Typical Frodo Gandalf situation. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow, indeed, Sean. Wow, indeed. So where do you think they'll Photoshop him into next? Because like if he was on a volcano, that would be cool. That would be pretty bitchin'. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Yeah, and special thanks to the cream of the crop of our patrons, mm-hmm. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, and Robin McCabe. We love you all very much, including those of you who are our mothers. <laughs> See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan, who just welcomed a new son into the world. And you can check Kyle out at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.